homes and bridges. Will Wild owns a business in Honolulu. I'm worried in the future events, if we don't monitor our drainages and our streams, that something much worse could happen. We could be looking at losing lives, so let's take this as a warning. Flash flood watch has been extended through tomorrow. A lot of college students have been learning from home for an entire year now. CBS's Jim Crisula says some don't plan to go back. Overall college enrollment is down 3% from last spring's level, according to figures from the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center. Undergraduate enrollment is down 4.5%, while graduate enrollment is actually up more than 4% compared to spring 2020. An American icon is celebrating a big one. Now Mattel brings you Ken, Barbie's boyfriend. He doesn't look it, but Ken turned 60 today. Senior design director Robert Bess says Barbie's main squeeze has come a long way. Now it's more about different hair textures and hairstyles, different skin colors, as well as representing different abilities. One Ken has a man bun, another a brightly colored merman tail. S&P futures up 25. This is CBS News. Switch to T-Mobile for business and get an amazing deal on your business plan. Stop in-store today for details. Terms and conditions apply. See T-Mobile.com for more. For a limited time, the Home Depot and Frigidaire have cooked up something truly amazing in the kitchen. Even lower prices on Frigidaire gallery wall ovens with air fry and cooktops, including easy-to-clean induction cooktops, plus free basic hookup and delivery. With prices like these, it's time to take those kitchen remodel plans off the back burner. Bring on spring. With spring savings now on Frigidaire, only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. About through March 31st, U.S. only. This CNET Tech Update is sponsored by Dell Small Business. This year's Consumer Electronics Show, a week-long showcase of the latest tech, was a bit different this year. CNET's Connie Guglielmo says the pandemic has inspired a new trend. Touchless was a big theme, and I think it will continue to be one, not just as we cope with the pandemic, but into the future. Dell's semi-annual sale for business has arrived. Save up to 45% on Dell computers. Powered by Intel Core processors. Just call 877-ASK-DELL. Republicans in Idaho are canceling a lottery game. This is Powerball. According to Idaho lottery officials, the game generates about $28 million in sales annually in the state, with schools receiving about $14 million per year. But lawmakers have ruled Powerball a thing of the past, fearing foreign participation. Democratic Representative Chris Mathias. We should be concerned that they could be persuaded, they could be lobbied heavily by countries that we are not particularly friendly with. Powerball is expanding to include Australia and Britain. Lisa Mateo, CBS News. One company that saw profits jump during the pandemic is bracing for a slowdown. Have you, have you had your soup today? Shares of Campbell's have been dropping after the company said it expects sales to decrease. There's a cheese shortage at Costco, thanks in part to tariffs. Company says imported varieties are stuck on shipping containers trying to get into U.S. ports on the West Coast. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. Cindy and her husband felt stuck paying annual fees on their timeshare. But what could they do? We tried to sell it, but no results. No results at all. Then they called Newton Group, and that's when things really started to happen. We got a call within days. We never felt like they forgot us because we would get updates along the way. Before long, they were free and clear. We signed up with Newton Group in August, and it was a done deal by January. And how's Cindy now? We're very happy with Newton group. It was a very, very uh, positive experience for us, and we highly recommend them. And we are looking forward to not having to pay the $1,500 a year. Do what Cindy did. Call Newton Group for your free consultation and free consumer's guide to timeshare exit. Call 877-TOP-EXIT. That's 877-TOP-EXIT. Newton Group has an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau, so call them at 877-TOP-EXIT or visit newtonexit.com today. Hi, it's Randy and Boots from the Auto Smarts Radio Network. And why should you listen to our show on this station? Well, Boots is a man of many talents and has knowledge you won't believe. Just listen. Hey, Boots, what's your favorite thing to talk about? Cars. Rick Ocasek was the lead singer of what band? The Cars. What was Gary Newman's biggest selling song? Cars. Who was the all-time leading scorer in Notre Dame basketball history? Car. That's right, Austin Carr. Anything you'd like to add? Cars, cars, cars. 57 Chevy. Cars, That's Auto cars, Smarts. Friday cars, afternoons cars, at 106 cars, on 970 WATH and 97.1 FM. That's a 57 Chevy? Cars, cars, cars. 
Are you ready for an upgrade for your home? Then check out Superior Renovations in Albany for all your home improvement needs. Superior Renovations is a family-owned business of over 20 years specializing in bathroom and kitchen remodelings. Superior Renovations is committed to superior quality and results. For your free estimate, call 740-517-8795. Great references and great prices available for your next project. Superior Renovations, 27480 Old State Route 346 in Albany. Need to do something amazing for that special person in your life? How about a romantic getaway? Think hot tub, champagne, chocolate, and a luxurious cabin in the hills of West Virginia, and you've got the perfect weekend getaway for two. Now that's romantic. What's even better? At Hemlock Haven Luxury Cabins, you can do it for just $2.99 weekdays and $3.99 on weekends. Romantic nights with champagne, chocolate, and your own private hot tub at Hemlock Haven Luxury Cabins. Go to hemlockhavenwv.com. That's hemlockhavenwv.com. At Century National Bank, we believe strong communities are built with local volunteers, donations, and leadership. Last year, we supported 301 local organizations and donated more than $393,000 to our local communities. Our bankers care about helping our entire community thrive and prosper. Century National Bank is committed to investing money locally and doing everything in our power to support the people and groups in our neighborhoods. Century National Bank, Division of the Park National Bank, member FDIC, centurynationalbank.com. Get the facts every hour at the top of the hour with CBS News Radio on Classic Hits 97 and 97.1 FM, WATH. Have you ever thought about having a podiatric physician examine your feet? Doctors of podiatric medicine set broken bones, perform wound care, and remove bunions. Common health issues that they treat include ingrown or fungal nails, corns, warts, and skin problems like athlete's foot. Foot exams are easy and can prevent many problems. If you can't walk, work, or enjoy sports activities without pain, what are you waiting for? To find a podiatric physician who is a member of the Ohio Foot and Ankle Medical Association, visit associationsadvanceohio.com. In our 71st year of service to Southeast Ohio, AM 970 and 97.1 FM. Well, about 1,600 or so of the... Um, Let me get my uh, controls just right. There we go. About 1,600, 1,700 Athens residents were without power for about 40 minutes. But it's back now. It certainly affected us out here. Our transmitters were on, but our studios were off. All's well. It ends well. 65 degrees here at the moment. Supposed to get a bit warmer yet. Special edition today, Steve McChesney is going to join us via telephone, of course. This in the uh, times of COVID and all that stuff, we're trying to be, uh, you know, careful, right? Anyway, so uh, let's see here. One of the things, um, first of all, good morning, Steve. Good morning. Well, good morning. Yes, sir. It's a... it's a, uh, what am I trying to say, a bit overcast here, but pleasant and dry otherwise, but it's supposed to get some rain later. Um, where, where are you located? Where are we talking I, to? I am south of you. I am down in Orlando, Florida. Uh-huh. Yes, I know the city well. And uh, how, is that your residence there? Yes, uh-huh. Okay, how long have you lived there? I moved here in 1990, so I'm almost a uh, you know a natural citizen here. <laughs> well, seven more years yet, and then then you'll make yep yep. It. Um, just kidding, <laughs> of course, uh, Steve. I I heard about you somewhere, and uh, the, the 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 headline was interview a Hollywood stunt man, and yeah. <clears throat> it caught my eye. Uh, and, and so I got in t- contact with you, but mercy, uh, your background, I mean, we could go a thousand different directions today and I'm going to try to try to do my best to cover a few of those thousand. Um, <laughs> f- first of all, that's, 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 uh, where, 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 where were you raised? Where's your home? I was raised. 
I was raised in Los Angeles. Okay, uh, just a little place. Yeah, um, just a little tiny place. <laughs> yeah, what, what, what part of Los Angeles? Um, I lived, well, in Hollywood during my young life, and then we moved to the Valley. So we lived in, you know, Reseda, Can- mm-hmm. Canoga Park. Uh, later on in life, when I got older, I, I moved back to the Valley, lived in Encino. So just that whole area. I, I can tell you every back road in Los Angeles because <laughs> uh, I stayed I, I'm not too way. bad at it myself. Uh, <laughs> I was involved with KHJ years ago. Oh, KHJ, the real Don Steele. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, listen, and, and also, um, my son lives in Irvine. Um, oh, okay. One of our three kids. Um, so, then the L.A. connection, Hollywood, the uh, showbiz, the cinema capital of the world some might say except for place some place a little place in india somewhere um <laughs> but what what uh, it seems only natural that you might have gotten into that industry right well you know it, it, it is i was um when i was in elementary school i went to santa monica boulevard elementary school yes and that is one block away from the hollywood cemetery Yep. And the back of the cemetery, it backs up to the back of Paramount Studios. So I remember I used to get out of school, and I used to go and sneak into Paramount Studios. And when I first did it, nobody really knew who I was, but they didn't question it. They figured I was just probably either an actor's kid or a director's kid or a producer's kid. I mean, I was just a kid. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wasn't a threat. So I used it to my advantage, and I used to go watch – uh, I watched him film a whole bunch of different shows. I used to watch him film Homer Pyle and Dick Van Dyke's show and uh, Bonanza. I mean, I, I snuck into a bunch of studios. Desi Lou was one of my favorites because of Gomer Pyle and Dick Van Dyke. Matter of fact, I snuck into Dick Van Dyke so many times that when Dick Van Dyke's kids were there, they had a closed set. They still let me in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because they got to know me. I was known as Little Stevie. Uh, <laughs> eventually, obviously, they figured out that I didn't belong to anybody. And so I don't know who it was, but somebody smart kind of tracked down my mother. You know, and the unfortunate reality is I, I was raised by, you know, alcoholic parents and a single mother at the time. Mm. And um, once they figured out who I was, then it was okay for me to be there. Even the guards at the gate. And I didn't sneak in anymore. I just walk in. Um, cause it was kind of like, they felt like they were kind of being my babysitter, I guess. Yeah, I but anyway, yeah. for me, it was, I was just every day watching how they were making movies and TV shows. And I loved everything about it. You know, the, the, the big crews that were there and how they worked like a dance, you know, with lighting and right. you know, the whole nine yards. So, so it, it just, it was what I wanted to do for life. I wanted to be in the business. And I didn't care if it was as an actor or if it was as a producer or a writer or whatever it was. I just wanted to be a part of that business. And, you know, throughout my teenage years, I got involved in in drama club in high school. And, you know, so I started going, knowing that that was my intention to get there. But I was also a bit of an adrenaline junkie. I like, you know having that adrenaline pump through my veins. So I got into involved in gymnastics and I got into martial arts and all that while I was a kid. So ended up making, to make a whole long story short. I ended up going into the army out of high school. And while I was in the army, I decided when I get out of the army, I'm going to let uncle Sam pay for my schooling and I'm going to go to film school. So that's what I did. I moved back to Los Angeles, went to film school. And while I was in school, obviously the government, the GI bill paid for my tuition, but they did not pay for my rent and they did not pay for my food, so I had to get a job. Mm-hmm. And I became a server. And I don't know if any of you out there listening have, are servers, but I'm, I have nothing but the utmost respect for somebody who serves other people when they're hungry, because there's nothing worse than grumpy, hungry people. <laughs> it was a job I hated, and I have nothing but respect for servers. I tipped them immensely. Um, but I didn't want to do that. And a friend of mine that was in school with me, he was a stuntman. And he was trying to become a producer, and he said, listen, I know a guy that teaches stunt work, and, you know, if that's what you want to do, here's his number. And so I called him up, and that gentleman's name was Kim Kahana, and Kim Kahana was Charles Bronson's stunt double. Mm-hmm. And some of you in my age range will know the old Banana Splits uh, comedy hour on TV on Saturday mornings. 
there was a, a, a live-action miniseries in there called Danger Island with Dan Michael Vincent. Well, Kim Kahana also played Chongo on that series. Oh. So anyway, he was my, my stunt teacher. And um, while we were in stunt school, one of the things that Kim taught us was how to sneak into studios. And I went, Kim, I have that in spades, man. I did that since I was a kid. And so I did. I snuck into Universal Studios, and they were filming Battlestar Galactica. And the star of that show was Lauren Green. Well, remember when I was a little kid, I used to sneak on the Bonanza set. And so I decided to go right into that soundstage, even though it was a closed set. And I immediately got stopped by a, a PA, a production assistant. He mm-hmm. said, can, can I help you? And I went, oh, I'm here to see Mr. Green. He said, okay, what's this about? I said, well, I, I want to surprise him. I'm an old friend of his. Mm-hmm. He goes, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Come on, you got to go. I went, no, really. I'm an old friend of his. I want, I want to say hi to him, you know. And he goes, I'm sorry. This is a closed set. You can't be on here. Well, Lauren Green was sitting in a director's chair, and he's kind of watching this from a distance. And I'm flailing my arms. And he looks over, and he waves me over. He, me and the PA walk over. Yeah. The PA is a little disgusted with me now. And I said, Mr. Green, you're, you probably don't remember me, but when I was a kid, I used to come onto the Bonanza set. And he looked at me for a second, and he goes, Stevie? Stevie? Yep. And I went, yes. He jumped up. He hugged me. <laughs> PA wandered off. <laughs> um, he, he goes, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm in stunt school. I'm in film school, but I'm, I'm trying to break into stunt work. And he goes, do you have your, your Screen Actors Guild card yet? And I said, no, not yet. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get to that. And he goes, hold on. He called the director over. And he says, I want you to give him a job. He's trying to break in as a stuntman. Give him something, anything on the show, just so we can get a SAG card. Now, I don't know. If you're aware, but in California, it's it's a, a closed state, meaning you have to be union to work. Yes. And you can't be union unless you work. So it's like a catch-22. Well, they have what they call a Taft-Hartley Act, which allows a producer to hire a non-union actor or stunt person if they cannot find a union person at that exact moment. So they had to actually write a scene into the, the script where this guy gets punched <laughs> <laughs> and that was me that got punched, but it got me my sad card. How about So that? thank you, Lauren Green. And it just goes to show you how you never know in life, everything that you do in life, you don't know when later on in life it's going to come back to pay back, pay oh, you off. I can and attest to that, was, that over and over. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So that was uh, that's how I, I broke into the business. Um, I ended up doing uh, just over 350 movies and TV shows. I was quite successful at it. Um, I got hurt. I, I did a movie called Masked, and it was kind of a, a low-budget movie on the Lucha Libre wrestlers. And we were at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles, and I got thrown out of a boxing ring. And the guy that threw me out was huge, big, big boy. And I'm pretty small. Uh, and they had a mat set up for me to hit, but he threw me. I flew right over the top of that mat. And all I saw was the cement floor. So I, I learned in stunt school, tuck and roll, tuck and roll. So I did but I ended up doing a flip and a half and landed on my left kneecap, shattering my kneecap. Oh my. And that pretty much became the end of my stunt career. Didn't need to. I was successful. All of my stunt buddies had broken every bone in their body. I mean, these guys, that's part of the job. But for me, it was a, a, a pain that I never wanted to experience again. So, you know, I decided that was it. I didn't get out of the business. I stayed in the movie business for a, a while after. I became a talent manager, actually. Um, but that began my life in directions I had no idea that it would take me into. You know, when I was in the Army, I was a cook. So when I hurt my knee, I opened a restaurant. I became a talent manager, but I also opened a restaurant in Encino. And I did it in Encino because all of my actor buddies lived in the hills right there, in Tarzana and all that. So they used to come to my restaurant. And once the public found out that celebrities were coming to the restaurant, then, of course, they wanted to come. So I was quite successful at it. What was but, the uh, what was the uh, theme of the restaurant? Well, it was called the L.A. Cabaret, and it was a comedy club slash restaurant. We had both the comedy club in the back and the restaurant up front, uh, and we had a lot of great comics that came through that place. I mean, uh, it, it was if we were at the time the comedy store was huge. Uh, there was a lot of big acts coming out, like Robin Williams. So I used the comedy because we had comedy every night. And a lot of times we had free admission, mm-hmm. two-drink minimum, so that paid off. But the restaurant part was the huge part. 
Uh, and it became so successful that I was there, I mean, it seemed like 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it, 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 it actually became too much. And I thought, I can't do this. This is just too much. So I sold it after three years. And it's still there, by the way. It's called the L.A. Cabaret, and it's still there on Ventura Boulevard. And uh, <laughs> they're still doing well, from what I understand. And that was years ago. But I got out of that business, but I learned a lot about marketing. Uh, not only in the restaurant business, but also by being a talent manager, because now I'm marketing talent. Uh, so I, that's what began my, my marketing career, which is what I do basically today. Um, but as you know, I, I sent you that, that list of – I've been a jack of many trades and a master of some of them. No, it was um, overwhelming. It was overwhelming. I get this list, and every other question was an entirely different career almost. <laughs> you gave me 19 suggested questions, which is great. I appreciate it, but mercy. Uh, very few are related directly anyway, indirectly, of course. And before we get yeah. any farther, did you know Richard Link? No, the name doesn't ring a bell. Okay. Well, he, um, he was um, very tightly associated with Athens here. And uh, never missed a homecoming. He's passed a few years ago. Um, but he was the uh, the guy that found Andy Griffith and Jim Neighbors and oh, all wow. those guys. And he was executive producer of the Andy Griffith show and all that sort of thing. And um, and uh, an OU grad. OU, I'm talking about Ohio University. That's right here in Athens. Beautiful, great, right. great school. Anyway. Um, I just thought I'd ask about uh, whether you had known him or not. But uh, well, you know, probably uh, he's probably a, a generation above me. Yeah. So when I was a yeah. kid, I didn't really get to know who the producers were so much as I did the actors. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, okay. So, showbiz. Um. But I got, that. Let me tell you another quick little story. Yeah, do it. Because it's one of the memorable ones for me. Another one that happened when I was a kid. Now, I told you my mother was an alcoholic, and there was a, a bar that she used to hang out called The Crossroads, and it was also on Santa Monica Boulevard, right next door to the Harvey Hotel. And, you know, my babysitter was actually the cook at The Crossroads. So I used to hang out in that area, too, because my mom was in there. But I, right behind it, there was a sound studio. I didn't know it at the time that it was a sound studio, but I just knew that there was a building back there that people would go come in and out of. And so I'm back behind the crossroads, and this guy walks up to me, and he says, hey, kid. He goes, do you like music? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, why don't you come in and listen to something that I'm recording? You know, little, I didn't know intention, idea this could be a guy trying to get me into his van with candy. I had no idea. I just went, okay. So I go into this, and it was a sound studio, and I listened to, he plays this music, and he goes, what do you think of that music? Is it cool? And I went, yeah, it's pretty cool. He goes, but I mean, do you really think it's really cool? You know, I want to get your opinion. I said, well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I like it. It's got a good, you know, beat to it and stuff. It was Peter Fonda, mm. and they were doing the music for Easy Rider. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> the... Um... I had an office at 9465 Wilshire Boulevard and um, for a couple of years. Uh, you know, uh, it is an amazing city. Um, and, and you, you know, why are you in Florida today? What, 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 what caused you to move clear across the nation for a year? Well, you know, I stayed in the business. Like I said, I was a talent manager. And I had a celebrity client. And I don't know to give the name, uh, well, I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. Uh, at the time, I was managing a, a gentleman by the name of Michael Winslow. And if, for those of you who don't know the name, you probably know who it is. If you have seen, ever seen any of the Police Academy movies, he was the gentleman who did all the noises with his voice. Okay. And Michael and I were together for 18 years and quite successful, but his wife decided to fire me. Because she just, you know, they, he was basically a star at the time because of police academy, and uh, they didn't want to, you know, part with that percentage of the money. And uh, I said, okay, that's fine, you know, that's that's fine. We'll just part our ways. 
And at the time I went, you know, and my, by the way, I have three daughters and my wife was pregnant with our second daughter. And I said, you know, let's get out of LA. I don't want to raise, you know, our daughter here. We didn't know if we were having a boy or girl for the second one. Uh, I said, I, I, let's go someplace where it's better for the family. And so we didn't know where to go. Uh, we chose Orlando because of Disney World, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd been here, and, and Orlando is a very clean city. I mean, everything is groomed. All the grass is groomed up and down the city. At the time, back in the 90s, they used to Lysol the payphones at night because mm-hmm. they wanted that Disney-esque look. And it's still pretty much that way. There's no graffiti, really, in Orlando. Um, there's, there's bad pockets like any city, but, but in general, it's just a really clean safe city so we moved here and uh we ended up having a third daughter so we have three girls and it was just a great place to raise them and i've loved it being here so back to the story with when i was fired from michael um i got a call probably six or seven months after i got to florida and it was michael's wife and she said you need to come back you need to come back to work for us and I'm like, mm, no, I just made a move across the country. I'm not coming back to L.A. And she said, you don't have to come back to L.A. You can do it from there. But we need you to take over the management again. Mm. And uh, so I did. And I did it from a distance. And uh, ended up, I got a, there was a movie called Extra Large that was going to get be shot in Miami. And it was, it's an Italian version of Miami Vice, basically. And uh, so I submitted Michael for it, and he got the job. And they, had, they were going to shoot three movies, three 90-minute movies for Extra Large. And so I moved Michael and his family out to Key Biscayne in Miami. And they were they shot there. They were shot for about, mm, I guess, about nine months. And while they were shooting there, my wife and I found a house in Orlando. And uh, ended up they ended up buying a house in Orlando and moving their family to Orlando. Well, it, it all worked out fine until... Michael's wife passed away, and Michael ended up uh, meeting another lady, and she came to work for me. I had an office at Universal Studios here in Orlando. She came and worked for me and as a secretary, basically, and after a year, uh, she fired me. <laughs> she was going to marry Michael, and she wanted to become the manager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, okay, I've been, this is deja vu. I've been through this before. Uh, you know, and I was... I've been fairly successful in my life, and I, I didn't really need to, to do this anymore. And uh, so I said, that's fine. And we parted ways. So and that was the end of – that was the last of my involvement in the entertainment business that way. Wow. You know, I still have another friend of mine, a partner of mine right now. Uh, you may know who he is. He's a, another uh, radio talk show host. His name is Ron Seggi. You know who I, that is? I know of him. Yes, he he got a show on the USA Radio Network. Um, mm-hmm. They call him the Tonight Show of Talk Radio because it's all celebrity guests. He's been doing it for about thirty years. Yes. He was actually Ed McMahon's partner on uh, Next Big Star. He was the voice of Next Big Star. Anyway, so he and I have got a couple of things that we're doing as far as the entertainment business. But you know, it's just one of the many that I've had along the way. But all of it led to where I am today. All of those jobs led, and, and I can I can. Now, looking back at it, I can tie it all together, not knowing it at the time, though. And that's the good things and the bad things. Well, where are you today? Today, I am—I consider myself to be a results coach. I work with businesses. I work with them on their marketing. I work with them on just understanding their client or their customer. Um, I, I, I... heavily and what motivates people. I also talk about the five different generations that are on the planet and the differences between them. Because, you know, based on how we were raised and what generation we were raised in determines our values. And uh, we're all motivated by the same things because we're all human beings. But our values are a little different depending on the generation. Now, you so see, that's what I do today. I, I... You know, I I reached out to you and I said I want to talk to a stuntman, but when I, <laughs> but here it is that you have uh, so much more than just that. I mean, you had a, a, a interesting, not terribly long career in that injuries, all that sort of thing. You met many celebrities, um, mm-hmm. and in um, on screen as well as off screen celebrities. 
Um, yep. And yet today, here you are, you have, you've written a book, several as yep. a matter of fact, but one in particular called Rearranging Change. And yep. um, it's um, uh, been a bestseller in, um, now they have different categories of bestsellers, topically different yes. categories. You've been the bestseller in five different categories. Yes, I was very proud. This is my fourth book, the first one to ever get that kind of recognition. But, it, yeah, it went to number one in five different business categories on Amazon and also number one in four different countries around the world, which was I was quite pleased of, too. But, you know, it comes from that particular book was a lot of elements went into writing it. Number one, it's a great, if you're in business of any kind or you're a salesperson, this book will help you, no doubt about it. But the way I wrote it, I wrote it in kind of the same vein that somebody would write a screenplay. I wanted it to be entertaining. I wanted the reader to laugh, draw some kind of an emotional response as they're reading the different chapters, because I think that's the way you learn the best. You know, that was something I learned in high school. I had a, a, uh, a U.S. history teacher. Mr. Logan, when I was in high school, he was the you know, U.S. history wasn't like a subject that I was interested in, but I got an A in that class mm-hmm. because of the way he taught it, and he taught it in the way that he drew, drew out emotions from the students, and you know, and that's kind of stuck with me my whole life. But I wanted to write it like a screenplay, where it's just it, it's, it takes you ups and downs and and all around, and it worked. And I think that's the reason that it went to number one. Because I had a history teacher, the same course you're talking about, junior year of high school. David Dayton was his name, and he taught me all about life, not just American history. There you go. Same, the, it's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Amazing. And, I and, wonder if they were to each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Dave Dayton later became the police chief in uh this, uh, it's a Columbus, Ohio suburb of Worthington, although Worthington was there before Columbus was. But um, anyway, and he recently passed, I might add. But, um, well, interesting. And how can someone like that impress his students or her students in so many ways besides the course itself? You know? You know? That is, and that's one of the things that I talk about, too, in my coaching that I do. It's, it's really a matter of we are really all in service to other people. Yes. And, and if we realize that, we figure out ways that, that we can inspire, because that's what it's about. If I can inspire anybody, and whether it's a client of mine or not a client of mine, if I inspire you, I am fulfilling my obligation as a human being on this planet and and you do that in ways and your teacher and my teacher they figured out a way to reach us emotionally spiritually not just teacher student you know they even as ready the teacher will appear and i believe i've i've seen that over and over again in my life but it's not the usual teacher student relationship it's the inspiring teacher who actually goes beyond just giving you education. And I was fortunate to have really quite a few of those. I, I'm going to say a half dozen. And and many students have never had one, you know? Right. Right. Well, And that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. Um, yeah, I, I, I the same. I, I've had a, a handful in my life. Uh, actually, even my careers, the different careers that I've had, you know, and, and I've been I've been a taxi driver. I've been a uh, hypnotist, a stage hypnotist. <laughs> I've been through a lot of different occupations, but all of them were my inspiration to lead me here today. And it was all good. Um, let's see, just some uh, patent questions. What uh, what was the most famous um, movie you were involved in? Ah, uh, easy one. Star Trek VI. Okay. And for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, it was the last 
Star Trek movie that had the original cast in the TV series. Yes. Leonard Nimoy, William Shatner, all those guys. Um, well, I worked on that movie for three weeks, and it was at Paramount Studios. And uh, they used to give us what they call call sheets. And the call sheet is an 11 by 17 piece of paper that has your name on it, has everybody's name on it, but it also has the times that you need to report to makeup and wardrobe the following day. Right. So you'd get it at the end of the day, they'd hand you this call sheet, and that's your call sheet for the next day. Well, everybody would read them and, you know, find out what time they needed to be there, then they'd throw them away. I found out later in life that at the Star Trek conventions, because it was the last movie with all of the original cast members, those call sheets were selling for up to $1,000 a piece. Mm-hmm. Man, if I'd only known... <laughs> Right, right. What I've thrown away, I But don't. I worked on that. Yeah. I also worked on another one I worked on that I uh, enjoyed was For the Boys with Bette Midler and James Caan. Mm-hmm. That was a, a great movie to work on. Um, another movie that I used to, didn't work on, but I used to hang out uh, because of my buddy Burt Reynolds, I used to hang out when they were shooting Hooper, the movie Hooper. Um, and people don't know, Hooper was actually based loosely on a stuntman's life uh, by the name of Buddy Joe Hooker. And Buddy Joe actually worked on that movie, too, but I was just a guest on that set. But that, that was a lot of fun. It was just watching my stunt buddies just do their thing. Um, let's see. Restaurant owner, um, author, stuntman, um, a, a business consultant, um, yep. marketing consultant, all that sort of thing. Well, well what's been the... You know, and this may be a tough question, but what is the most favorite thing you did during your lifetime? Well, to answer that question, I could find a favorite part of all of those careers. Yep. Um, Because I found fun in all of them. You know, even that point, you know, where I was a taxi driver for a while. And that was fun because I was meeting people that I never would have met mm-hmm. in any other circumstance. Um, you know, I, I'm, I've always been somebody who looked at the psychology of people and what makes people tick. And that's one of the reasons why I became a stage hypnotist. Now, that was a really fun job. Uh, it took a while. I had to spend a lot of time to learn how to do that. But, you know, when you get on stage and you... You know, if you ever watch a, a stage hypnosis show, you'll always see that the hypnotist never picks people out of the audience. He always asks for volunteers mm-hmm. because that's the number one thing you have to do. Because if you ask for volunteers, those people who actually get out of their chair and come onto the stage, they're extroverts anyway. So they're a better source. If you have to pick somebody, they, you may not have a good show at all. So I start with that, you know. Um, but I learned about the human psychology of the conscious mind versus the subconscious mind and how it really works. And that I have applied uh, in what I do today, my consulting business. But also, I went to a school called, I don't think it was in the paper I gave you, but I went to a school called AWAI, and it was a copywriting school. And, you know, copywriting is anything you get in the, the junk mail you receive, the billboards you see, the commercials you see on TV, all of those are written by copywriters. Being, pers- being able to write persuasively. So doing hypnosis actually showed me how I can write persuasively and to do those kind of sales copies that, that are out there. So everything led to where I'm at today. And, and in such a good way, in such a fun way. I will tell you a story about my hypnosis. My first show I ever did as a hypnotist, I had three worries. My first worry was that nobody would show up to the show. My second worry was that I wouldn't be able to get people on the stage. And then my third worry was that I wouldn't be able to put them under into hypnosis. So this was at a moose lodge. And now I have my wife and my oldest daughter. My oldest daughter's got a camera. She's going to videotape it. We pull into the moose lodge parking lot, and there's only three cars in the parking lot. <laughs> worry number one, yeah, nobody yeah. shows up. Yeah. We walk into the building. I'm there it's about an hour before the show. We walk into the building. There's probably about 15 people in there. Now, where their cars were, I have no idea, but at least there was more than there were cars. So that was my first worry. Then it started to fill in. People started coming in, and uh, they sold the show as a dinner show. So they were giving dinner, and then they got to watch the show. Yep. Um, so my second worry was that I wouldn't get people on the stage. So when I started to do the pre-talk, the pre-talk is when you get the people to volunteer to come up. 
I only had three people come up on stage, and I had ten chairs sitting up there. And so I kept talking. That's what they teach you to do. Keep talking until you get the seats filled. So I kept talking, kept talking. Finally, I got everybody up on the, on the, the, the chairs. So my second worry, nobody would go up on stage. That almost came true. Then the third worry was not being able to put them under. Mm-hmm. So as you're doing what they call the induction, you're looking at all of the participants, and you can tell whether or not they're going under. If you see that they're not going under, you send them back to the audience. right? You don't want them on the stage if they're not going to be under because it's not going to be a good show. Right. So I'm doing the induction. I'm looking at people. I'm going over and I'm feeling their arms, and I'm sending people back to the audience. Well, I sent everybody back except for the first three people who came up on their own. I only had three people, and I was like, oh, my God, how how is this show going to go? Well, let me tell you, that show went amazingly well. Everybody had a great time. I ended up selling 35 DVDs at the end of the show because all the people in the Moose Lodge knew those three people and loved the show so much they all bought DVDs so they could watch it over and over again. So pretty interesting start to that career. What's that, uh, what's that? What's that TV show, Penn and Teller, or something like that? Yeah, yeah, that Blue yes. Penn and Teller, Blue And uh, yeah. you know that uh, my wife and I have watched that a couple times if we come across it, and it's you know it's very interesting uh, in the assortment of things, and then their critique of it. Oh well, I'm sorry, yes. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, that's okay, because that's a good example of, you know, doing magic. You know, another one of the things that I did as a kid, I, I, did, I loved magic. But Penn and Teller really used the psychological aspect of people in magic, misdirection and things like that. I mean, because magic, that's what it is. It's mm-hmm. misdirection. And same thing is kind of true with hypnosis. Uh, you know, they have what they call the critical factor that you need to put to sleep in order to get to the subconscious mind but it's done with misdirection. Here's a great example of it. For next time you see a hypnosis show, if you watch the hypnotist, when he counts them down, he'll say 10, you're getting, you know, you're getting sleepy. Nine, your eyelids are beginning to get very, very heavy. Seven, you're starting to get more comfortable. Well, you don't realize it, but he skipped the number eight. He went from 10, nine to seven. Well, that subconscious mind is like, wait a minute, that's not the right order. They're missing a number. That is putting that, critical factor out of the way so you can get straight to the subconscious. Something as little as that makes a huge difference. And I promise you, watch next time you see a hypnosis show. You'll see him skip a number when he's counting down. They always do. Have you, uh, have you ever used hypnosis um, uh, in, uh, in an improper way? <laughs> well, no, no, I have okay. not. Okay. And the thing is that here's the, the truth about hypnosis. <clears throat> Nobody is going to do anything in hypnosis that they wouldn't do normally anyway. Uh-huh. So you really can't do that improperly. In fact, I've only had one woman uh, come under my spell and never come out of it, and I married her. That's my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I like no, that. I'm just kidding. I like that. Yeah. But I will tell you what I've done with it uh, in my, my own daughter, my youngest daughter. She had a a toothache. Mm-hmm. She had a toothache, and we had to get her in for a root canal, but it was really hurting her. And I, so I, I did a hypnosis session with her, and I said, every time you feel that tooth start to hurt, I want you to pull on your right earlobe. And when you pull on your right earlobe, the pain will go away. Wow. So we did the session. Two nights later, we're having dinner, and my daughter reaches over and grabs her right ear, and she pulls, and then she goes back to eating. And my wife saw it. My wife goes, no, Brittany, did, did that did that work? Did you did the pain go away? And she goes, yeah. <laughs> my, wife's like, my wife would never let me put her under hypnosis. <laughs> she goes, you're not doing it to me. I said, honey, I, it's it's great. You know, you'll, you'll feel relaxed. Oh no no no. But yeah, so I only use it for good powers. <laughs> you sent me uh, 19 questions, and uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show they jump all over the place i'm going to jump all over the place with you how is covid19 isolation changing our lives and buying and selling habits and so on well in in a lot of different ways uh covid19 is the first time in any of our lives that we've experienced this kind of a shutdown of our our economy in our our country um so 
all of a sudden, more and more people have gone online. More and more people, including myself, are instead of going to stores, we're buying things from Amazon. Amazon has shot up. It's incredible what it's done. And COVID-19 has just made that go faster. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to add COVID-19 with the newest generation. Uh, generation Z, our youngest generation. Yes. This is a life-changing event for them because they're coming into their adulthood with this pandemic. Um, and and they're, they are already completely immersed in technology. This is just solidified it for them. And we're going to see on the other end – some of these things that we are doing now because of it are not going to change. We're going to continue with it. Uh, for the other generations, let's talk about Zoom and doing virtual meetings. Mm-hmm. We're going to see more and more of that. Even after this pandemic is over with, people are going to continue with the virtual meetings because they found out, number one, they're a lot cheaper. You know, you're not sending executives on an airplane across the country to go into a, a conference room and have meetings when it's just as easy and just as effective to do it online. Um, you're going to see things like my daughter's a good example. She just bought a truck. She, did, she used Carvana. She didn't even go to a dealership. Right. She went online, found what she liked, ordered it. They delivered it. They give her seven days to decide if she wants to keep it or not. Right. Uh, that, again, because they don't want to go to a dealership and be around people. So that's definitely changed. I think in some cases for the better, um, some cases for the worse. But in general, I'm a true believer that no matter what happens in life, it's always for the good if you look for the silver lining of it. And COVID, I'll give you a good example for me. Uh, I got to spend, when, when it hit last year, my book had just come out mm-hmm. in March of last year. Now, I had no idea that COVID was coming. And I named my book, the title is Rearranging Change, How You Market to an Ever-Changing World. Well, it just happened, the title fit perfectly for what happened with the world, because it changed drastically at that time. That might be another reason why I went to number one. But um, it did give me the chance now to, to stay in my house. I didn't go anywhere, and I got a lot of stuff done. I got a lot of stuff done on my website. I got a lot of stuff done on my coaching I got. I mean, there was just a lot of things. I had no distractions because I wasn't going anywhere. I got to focus on what I was doing. And I think a lot of people got to focus because of, of COVID-19. So there was a lot of benefits to COVID-19. Uh, unfortunately, a devastating disease, uh, and that's the way it is. I mean, but we've learned a lot, and hopefully going forward, we're going to learn to wash our hands more often and, and do those kind of things. We have about 10 minutes remaining. i got to burst through some of these um okay like i asked that question now this one's really quite different what's the difference between sales and marketing marketing is how you get people to know who you are and sales is getting them to take their credit card out that's the easiest definition i can give you marketing is all about building your brand it's all about inspiring people, getting them to get to know you and who you are, uh, being of service to them. In sales, first of all, sales doesn't work. Uh, If if you don't have sales, you don't have a business. So you Uh, have to have the sales. But if you look at your body, you know, uh, marketing is your limbs, your arms and your legs and what you're doing. Sales is what keeps the heart beating. (laughs) But you can't have sales unless you have proper marketing because people have to know, like, and trust you before they'll give you their money. And that's a big part of it. You know, just to try to, you know, if you have a widget that you're trying to sell somebody, you know, you've got a, there's a thousand other people trying to sell the same widget. Why should they buy from you? Well, if you've built a relationship with them, they're going to buy from you because they know, like, and trust you versus somebody they don't know. Next question. Um, you know, you talked about millennials. You talked about, uh, what was the other one you said? Boomers. Well, gen- Okay, now there's these five generational categories. And yep. I recently, uh, what was it, two weeks ago, Scott, I think I did a definition mm-hmm. of each of them. Yeah, and, yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Now, um, one of the questions you posed to me was, how would you talk to the five generations differently? 
Well, uh, that's an easy one. Uh, I'll, let's go through all five real quick. I'm going to start with the oldest generation, the tr- traditional generation, uh, otherwise known as the silent generation. If you keep in mind that that generation grew up in the Great Depression, um, they learned how to pinch a penny. They don't spend their money foolishly. But they're very traditional in everything they do. If they drink Pepsi, they don't switch to Coke. You know, If they bank at Bank of America, they're not switching over to a different bank. If you need them to come around and do something differently for you to get your product, you need to give them a really good reason why. And always keep in mind that they're a very polite generation. So you need to use words like please and thank you and yes sir and no ma'am because that's their language. Um, the next generation, the baby boomers, my generation, we're a greedy bunch. You know, part of it's because our parents on our birthdays would give us one present or Christmas get one present, not a tree full, because they were penny pinchers. It's Great Depression. So we wanted more. We always wanted more. And we did everything we could to get more. We got more power. We got more money. We wanted the biggest house on the block, the best car. So, you know, in, in radio, we know WIIFM stands for what's in it for me. Well, baby boomers invented that radio station. So when you talk to baby boomers, you need to give them, tell them what the benefits are to them. It's all about them. So focus everything on what's in it for them because that's what they're looking for. And by the way, if you know, our, our government right now is run by baby boomers. It has been for a number of years now. But if you look at the world, there's a lot of problems because of the greed and the power that goes on. But that's just a, it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just kind of how it is with that generation. Uh, the next generation is Generation X. Generation X, also called latchkey kids. Uh, they come home from school, and mom and dad both weren't home because mom and dad both went to work. Mm-hmm. They needed more and wanted more, so they had to make more money. Right. Uh, where the traditional generation, mom stayed home and raised the kids. Dad went to work. Uh, but Generation X, coming home to nobody there, the positive side of that is it taught them to be very independent. They can deal with prices. They, can, they know how to cook for themselves and clean for themselves. So they became very independent. So when you talk to people from Generation X, you've got to appreciate their independence and let them make the decision. Let them give them an either-or choice so that there's a choice, uh, and that's the best way to talk to them. Millennials, understand millennials' preferred communication style is text messaging. They prefer that over all other forms of email, phone calls, snail mail. They prefer to text message. It's just their communication style. When you talk to millennials, also use hashtags because they recognize that, and that's part of their language now. Uh, and back to the politics, just for a, a quick second, you know, to run for president in the United States, you need to be 35. Well, the oldest millennial right now is 37. So they are going to be taking over those positions of power. Mm-hmm. You're going to watch the baby boomers moving out of power. And you're going to watch the millennials moving into power. Uh, Millennials, the good thing about that, I think, is that millennials are very inclusive. They like all people. They don't care about the color of your skin. They don't care about your religious uh, orientation. They don't care about your sexual orientation. They like all people. They're very inclusive. They have a lot of friends. And I think that when they do take over those positions of power in the government, it's going to translate across the world. They're going to be very tolerant of other countries and the way other countries are run and not quite the same greed and power hungry that we are today with uh, our baby boomers. Um, And then, of course, we have the Generation Z, like I said. Remember, Generation Z has never lived on this planet without Amazon. So they are very used to having things delivered to them. Um, Businesses like, you know, DoorDash and Uber Eats and those kind of things where it's all delivered in Amazon, obviously, are going to do really, really well for that generation. And that generation is coming of age right now. Do you be a a, a real factor. Do you think... um... Let me try it differently. What, of those different generations, which is the easiest to sell to? I think baby boomers. Boomers. If you can show them the, the benefit to buying, they buy. Uh, it's like, you know, I, I think the easiest person to sell to is a salesman. <laughs> you know, because that's just that's the, what they do for a living, and if you know how to hit those right emotional buttons, you're mm-hmm. going to get it. And I think the baby boomers are that one. And plus, baby boomers have a lot of expendable income. You know, they have the money to spend. You know, so there's... I think it's the I'm sorry, finish. So I just, I think that's the easiest one to sell to. Uh, business people, okay. 
I am just inundated, and I'm I'm seventy. What am I? Seventy. Seventy-one. Two something like that. By the way, I get my second shot today. Um, hey, good for you. I got my first one two days ago. There you go. Anyway, so um, social media. Okay, you got LinkedIn, you got Facebook, you got Twitter, you got. I I can't even name them all, and, and every time I do, I hear of someone I haven't ever heard of. Yeah. How can that... business people best use social media? And we, we're at about three minutes now. Uh, my biggest advice to businesses that want to use social media is to outsource it. Okay. Outsource it to the young ones who know how to use it. Yeah. We, we try so hard to use it, but we do a lot of the wrong things. And, and some of the other ones that you didn't mention yet are TikTok and yes. Clubhouse. Yeah. Um, and, and they are – and we're going to see more. We're going to see new ones popping up. Realize that like places like Facebook, Facebook, the younger generations don't use it so much anymore because the older generations are using it. So once we move into using these social medias, the young ones move out. Um, they don't want to be a part of it. I even see that on TikTok right now. TikTok used to be young people doing dances and stuff like that. <laughs> now if you look at TikTok, you're seeing a lot of people over 40 and over 50 yeah. that are using it. Um, and it's, it's just – I know that, that that means that the younger generations are moving out of it. So my biggest advice, if you're in business and you want to use social media, outsource it. Get somebody else to help you. Our guest today has been Steve McChesney. Um, he's been a stuntman. He's been a business consultant. He's been an author of many fine books and one that's won all sorts of accolades uh, for uh, sales and marketing specialists uh, called Rearranging Change and then subtitle How You Market to a Never-Changing World. Steve, I think we're going to have to have another show down the road here maybe in a month or so. Oh, yeah. That'd be good. You have your own podcast, too, right? I do, under the same name, Rearranging Change. Okay. And my partner on that podcast is uh, Ron Seggi, who we talked about earlier. Yes. And he brings the celebrity interview. The first half is the marketing. That's me doing the marketing. And then the second half is Ron with a celebrity interview. And then we talk about that interview and how it dealt with business. You know, we've had some well, great guests on. We had Gene Simmons from Kiss on. We had uh, uh, Barbara Cochran from Shark Tank. So, we all the celebrity guests that we have on the show, we try to make it a business type of a. Right. Even though the interview is not about business, we talk about that celebrity and business and how they and, they handle business. And between this show and the next time we have you on, I'm going to work on how to bring you out of your shell a little bit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> hey, Steve. This is Scott Daly. Real quick, I'm a baby boomer, and I just want to tell you, I used to watch the Banana Splits show and loved it. Hey. Flegel was hey. my favorite character. <laughs> well, listen. Uh, have a great day down there, and say hi to your family for us up here in Athens, Ohio, and uh, from the people up here. All right? I will. And I just want to say one last thing. If anybody is interested in my book, Rearranging Change, you can get a free PDF copy of it. Just go to rearrangingchange.com. And we're you done. The 71st year of service to Southeast Ohio, AM 970 and 97.1 FM. WATH is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. We have breaking news from Minneapolis. A third-degree murder charge has just been reinstated for Derek Chauvin, the ex-police officer charged in George Floyd's death. Defense attorneys tried to get appellate courts to block the move by prosecutors after Judge Peter Cahill rejected it earlier as unwarranted. Legal experts say the additional charge helps the prosecution by giving jurors one more option to convict. Video captured Chauvin pressing his knee against Floyd's neck for nine minutes before he died. Exactly one year since the coronavirus pandemic began, people who've been yearning finally getting to hug loved ones. Even though she'd been vaccinated, Evelyn Shaw wasn't sure it was safe to give her granddaughter a big squeeze until she got a prescription from her doctor in New York City. It was a permission she slip. She said she was relieved to have that permission. Ten percent of Americans fear. have now gotten shots. A lot of people won't but get the same now. opportunity. I didn't feel free, but I've got this now. 
Many people won't get the same opportunity. CBS's Jim Crisula. 20% of Americans, one in five, say they've lost a relative or close friend to the coronavirus, according to a new poll. COVID-19 has claimed nearly 530,000 lives in the U.S. alone. Communities of color have been hit the hardest, with about 30% of African Americans and Hispanics having lost someone to the virus. President Biden will mark the one-year milestone tonight. The president says he'll use his primetime speech to lay out the next phase of the government's COVID response. What we will do as a government and what we will ask of the American people. A year after the nation first shut down to stop the spread, Mr. Biden says there's light at the end of the tunnel. We cannot let our guard down now. 